So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, in a moment, just a little bit, we'll put these words up on the screen behind me and you can find it there. But First Corinthians, it's Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 14. That's where we'll be this morning. This is, if you're new with us or visiting, this is part 12, actually, of our series entitled God's Grand Design, The Beauty of Biblical Complementarity. We are looking through the whole Bible at God's design of men and women. Male and female in this beautiful complementarity that he has designed men and women in. And how that design of God then fleshes out or functions in his people and in the family according to his design. So that's what we're in in part 12. So we're deep into the study coming toward the end of it. These past few weeks... We've been looking at specific details of men and women in the church. So our focus has been on the church, on the gathering of the church. And we have looked at some of the more difficult and challenging passages in the Bible on this subject. And we have one more today. Just a warning. One more challenging and difficult, perhaps, text. And these Passages that we've looked at over these past few Sundays have dealt mainly with this issue of what the Bible calls headship and submission or leadership and submission in the church. And that subject itself is uniquely challenging, especially in our culture today. My fear, my concern in looking in this kind of concentrated dose on this specific issue is that we would have a distorted perspective on the relationship of men and women in the church. We've been looking at these harder passages that deal with that specific issue of leadership and submission, but I don't want us to have a distorted view, perhaps, of men and women in the church. Proper leadership, submission, those issues are important. They're very important. We've looked at them. They are a reflection of God's design, as we have seen, but it's not the only way that men and women relate in the church. In fact, it's not even the primary way that men and women relate in the church. The more fundamental relationship that we have is that of brothers and sisters in Christ, a family. That is the dominant metaphor that the New Testament uses to refer to us to refer to the church as a spiritual family, brothers and sisters. And yes, in this spiritual family, we need spiritual fathers as it is to lead and to teach. And we need spiritual mothers. But all of us here as Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the most common description of our relationship. And it includes all of us. Right? Old, young, married, unmarried, kids, no kids. All of us, we stand in that relationship of brothers and sisters. And so we will think a little more on those terms in the next week or so as we continue in these series. I want you to hear that. First, however, this morning, we do have one more challenging text before us that we need to consider. First Corinthians chapter 14 dealing with silence 
of women in the church. What does that mean? This text, perhaps the most stark, if not startling, passage on men and women in the church. So in our study, we need to consider it, and that's what we want to do this morning. Let me read this passage. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 34 through 38, just this paragraph here. It'll be on the screen again if you don't have a Bible. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He says, verse 34, Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful, it says, for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize this, that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That's a very strong statement. And I know a very offensive statement to our modern sensibilities. Does the Bible really say that? Did Paul really say that? Did he really mean what he appears to mean when he said that? Well, that's our task, isn't it? That's part of our task is to understand what he meant in this context when he wrote those words. I can say this. It doesn't mean nothing. Right? It means something. <laughs> it's here. It's part of the Bible. It's God's word. And I'm often quite amazed how often this specific passage is either ignored or just dismissed out of hand. We, we have to consider it. It is part of God's word. In fact, Paul stresses that, doesn't he, in this very context where he says, understand, you may be have a gift of prop, maybe a prophet or spiritual, but the things that I write to you, including what I just wrote to you, are the Lord's commandment. It's weighty. And if you don't recognize this, you're not recognized. So he's not giving opinions here, is he? It's strong. This is God's word. And that is our purpose, isn't it? Always as we come on Sundays, we seek to understand all of Scripture, even, even the difficult parts, like head coverings. We looked at last Sunday, another difficult text and what that means. We, we seek to understand these texts because we believe that it is the word of God and we believe it's good. It's his instruction. It's his manual for us as his people. It's wise. And we want to conform ourselves, our practices to it. That's our commitment every Sunday. That's our commitment at this church. If you're visiting with us, we believe this book is the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean that all the passages of Scripture are equally plain in their meaning. They're not. There are some that are more difficult. And it turns out here that our passage this morning 
the meaning of this passage is not at all agreed upon by those who faithfully seek to understand it. Those who believe, just like we do, that this is God's word, those who believe in the design of men and women in a complementary type of way, do not agree fully on exactly what Paul means by these words. We'll consider them, but first, as we always do, let's look at the context, right? Context, as we learn over and over, is all important to understanding the meaning of any given text. So what is the context in which Paul writes these words? Well, it's similar to the context, in fact, same context as we saw last Sunday. In this section of Corinthians, starting in chapter 11 through chapter 14, Paul is dealing with specific issues in the meeting of the Corinthian Christians. Specific issues. He dealt with head coverings. We looked at that hard issue also last time. And then he talks about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, eating when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper. And he deals with that issue. And then beginning in chapter 12, that's the context of our statement. Beginning in chapter 12, he addresses the use of spiritual gifts. So here's the first point of context. Paul is addressing the proper use of spiritual gifts in relation to the assembly, to the gathering, like we're doing this morning. He's addressing the proper use of spiritual gifts in relation to the assembly. So that's chapter 12. If you look there, verse 1, this is his new subject. Now, concerning the pneumaticon, the spiritual things, and he means gifts here, the pneumaticon. He's taking up this subject in the church at Corinth because there is confusion. There seems to be a misconception in the Christians at Corinth that spiritual manifestations, especially more visible manifestations of gifts like the speaking in tongues and maybe gifts of healings, that spiritual manifestations are evidence of being spiritual. And Paul's going to say, not so fast. There's confusion. So he uses this word for spiritual here to introduce the gifts. And he talks about these gifts. He's not going to describe them in detail. He lists some of them there. But if you look at verse 4, chapter 12, here's the purpose. He says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And this is Paul's theme. Whatever gifts God has given, they are for the good of the body. They're for the common good or the edification, the building up of the body. They are not merely for your self-expression. That's going to be his theme. Whatever gifts he gives, they are for the common good. And notice he says there in verse 7, to each one, men and women. Right? Again, this is that fuller view of the, the body here as the body, the family, that all men and women are given spiritual gifts for the common good of the body. There's no distinction or discrimination there. He goes on to pick up on this body metaphor at the end of chapter 12, using this, again, one of his favorite analogies of the church, besides family, is a body, referring to us as members, and that we're all members of the body, but we all are different members. We have different functions. We're different parts. This is that section he goes on to say, whether you're an eye or an ear or a toe, 
you are important to the body. All of it must work together for the proper functioning of the body and the growth of the body. Every part is essential. Some parts are more prominent than other parts. Every part is essential. Do you believe that? You're not just a spectator. Every member is essential in the building up or the functioning of the body. So that's what he stresses. Now, before he gets to how that plays out in the assembly, when we come together, he first, here's the second point of context here, Paul emphasizes love as more excellent than the manifestation of any gift. That's chapter 13. Now, you probably know chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians because it's read all the time at weddings and different places. But did you know that it's right in the middle of Paul's discussion on spiritual gifts? Don't take this chapter out of context either. He says, I'll show you a more excellent way. We have a variety of gifts. Some are more prominent than others. Not all of us have the same. Don't envy one another. We don't all have these same gifts. But here's something you need to know that's more excellent, and it's love. This love for one another. So he says that in chapter 13, verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all truth so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. It counts for nothing. If I have the greatest manifestation of spiritual gifts, it counts for nothing. What incredible words. If not love. Love is more excellent, he says. So that's what he emphasizes, and we perhaps are familiar with that chapter. In fact, even his description of love there that he gives that we probably know, his description of love seems to be combating maybe what is going on in Corinth. He casts love in categories to combat the problems in Corinth. This is what love looks like. So love is more excellent. Love transcends spiritual gifts. If there are spiritual gifts, even as great as prophecy and tongues, they will be done away with. Love abides forever. That's what he says. So what then? Well, look, chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love. Pursue love. That's first. If it's not born in love, it is nothing. I would relate that, if I could, just for a moment, take a liberty here to our study of men and women, and we talk about function and roles in the church and getting it, trying to understand the Bible and get these things right. But if it's not done in love, it's nothing. If we get it exactly right and it's not motivated by a love for one another and a preference and a concern for one another, it means nothing. So let's keep it in perspective. Love is primary, he says, this pursue love. So chapter 14, pursue love, yet <laughs> desire earnestly these pneumaticone, the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So here's the third, last point of context for our passage. Paul prioritizes prophecy in the assembly for the sake of the edification of the church. That's chapter 14. He prioritizes, he says, especially that you may prophesy for the sake of edification of the church. Now, 
it's way beyond the scope of our study to launch into what is prophecy and how does it function and does it function today. Those are all worthwhile, important subjects, but beyond our subject, let it suffice this morning just to say this. Prophecy, as Paul is using it here, refers to this spirit-prompted speech that is for edification, exhortation, and consolation in the church. Do you see it there in verse 3, chapter 14? One who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. So that's what this prophecy does, and that's his theme, that it is good for the building up of the body. And he's going to contrast it with this gift of tongues or languages that we don't know as much about, perhaps, the speaking in other languages. He's contrasting that throughout. And he says, that gift, that's a manifestation of the gift of the Spirit, but, but that is useless in the assembly because no one understands it, and it's not good for building up the body. So focus on this kind of speech that is good for edification, not speech that isn't. Doesn't mean that's not legitimate, but he's restraining that in the assembly. If someone doesn't interpret, it's of no value for the edification of the church is what he's going on to say. So he's speaking of edification. If you look down at verse 12 of chapter 14. So also, since you are zealous for this pneumaticon, again, the spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Because that's the motive of love. A love for one another seeks to edify, seeks to build up the church here. So that's what he's emphasizing, this priority of prophecy. Now he comes to his conclusion. So let's, let's pick it up at verse 26. I'll put this on the screen. I want you to see the, this real immediate context here to our statement. Here's, here's, he's kind of bringing this conclusion as it relates to the assembly and coming together. Listen to what he says. Verse 26. What is the outcome then, brothers and sisters? That little word, brother, brethren, that's his favorite title, brothers and sisters, family. What is the outcome then? Now he's drawing some conclusion, some application. When you assemble, when you come together, this is the church. Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification, for building up. Now, he is here imagining kind of, it's a hypothetical scenario. Suppose when you assemble that there's this super abundance of gifts. Everyone has something to share, if you will, in the assembly. Again, he's, it's a hypothetical situation, kind of to the extreme. It's not necessarily a real description of what is happening. Nor is he trying to say that this is the exhaustive list of what happens when you assemble. It's not what he's doing. Nor is he trying to give an order of service here when you assemble. There's a lot of things he doesn't even address. He, he talks about in other places that he leaves out here. He's, he's trying to illustrate by saying, let's suppose there's a superabundance of gifts and each one has uh, something to contribute by way of speaking. These are all speaking type of gifts that he's assuming. What's his point? You're going to have to regulate and restrain things in order for there to be edification. That's what he's going to say. Let it be done. There has to be an order. And there will need to be restraint and regulation. For there to be edification. 
So he goes on. Just follow. I'll keep reading. So he takes these two primary gifts that he's been contrasting in chapter 14. Tongues, speaking in this different language, and prophecy. So he picks it up. Verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at at the most. So I'm cutting it off right there. Two or three at the most. (laughs) And each of them, in turn... Don't speak over each other and let one interpret. Remember, it's a language we don't know. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. It's his first use, silence. I'm restraining that. Because what we're after is love that issues in edification. And if they don't understand, just keep silent. He's not knocking the gift he's not saying it's not genuine or true at this point he's just saying it's not not good in the assembly so let him keep silent if no one's going to interpret then he moves on to the next verse 29 and let two or three prophets speak he's getting to this gift of prophecy and let others pass judgment evaluate But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. (laughs) Again, he restricts it. He says, you you keep silent, let the other one speak. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and may be exhorted. Again, now it's exaggerative. Not all have to get the prophecy. He just said that already in this very context. But he's just imagining if all you can all prophesy, but the goal is that you learn and be exhorted. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So he is calling on just get this context, a restraint of the use of the gifts for the good of the church. And he twice commands silence in these specific contexts. Isn't that amazing? That is Whatever these gifts might be and however they manifest, you have control over them. These aren't the sort of gifts that the individual loses all self-control. It's not how the Spirit works here. The Spirit, he says that, of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So you can keep silent, he says. Isn't that remarkable? It's not about self-expression. How we need to say that more today our culture is all about self-expression like the highest value probably in our culture is this individual self-expression as the true you the true meaning paul is curtailing even spirit prompted expression good gifts here for the sake of the good of the body and what is the ultimate ground of paul calling on this order and restraint do you see it there in verse 33 for god is not a God of disorder, but of peace. The character of God, the one to whom you are worshiping and seeking to give glory and reflecting, he is not a God of confusion and of disorder, but of peace. He grounds it in the character of God. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? So if you walk into a service and it's chaotic, Confusing, speaking over one another, everybody doing their thing, it does not reflect God. That's what he says. That's not God. God is a God of 
order, not confusion, and of peace. It's quite an amazing grounding, isn't it? As it is in all the churches, he says. In all the churches, worship should be carried out in this orderly manner for the sake of edification. Now, he says, our text, I know it's a lot of context, but it's really important. Let the women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper or disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. So now he takes up third time he's going to say silence. Let the women keep silent in the churches. Just as he said, certain prophets need to keep silent. Those with gifts of tongues at certain times need to keep silent. So the women need to keep silent. In the context of orderly worship and proper submission and restraint, he addresses the women in the assembly. Now that appears, as you read that, to be a more unqualified restriction than the one he gave to the prophets and to those speaking tongues. He gave very specific context when they were supposed to be silent. Here he just says, let the women keep silent in the churches feels pretty universal that is he doesn't specify the type of speech they are to be silent in like he did in the others and so that becomes the question what speech of women is he referring to that he says let them keep silent you see let them keep silent they're not permitted to speak verse 34 then verse 35 it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church what speaking what speech is he limiting is he restraining is he telling them is improper to do in church that's the question isn't it how limited or how extensive is his restriction why is this challenging why is this command here difficult well, one reason it's difficult is because of what we saw last Sunday in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. So very near context. If you remember that, that whole subject of head coverings and what that meant and how it applies. But in chapter 11, verse 5, he said, Let every woman who has her head covered while praying or prophesying. Hmm. So there in chapter 11, Paul clearly implies that women are praying and prophesying. Those are things you do out loud. Those are speaking things here. And it's only improper. He doesn't say that's improper. He says it's only improper if their head not covered, if they don't have that symbol of authority. Now, this is, that's only one verse, and it's only an implication. It's not his main point. Yet it's significant because as we walked through that text last week, if women just aren't allowed to pray and prophesy... It would seem his whole argument is superfluous. Why is he even talking about this? It's like they're not allowed. But the whole issue of head coverings and when it's proper, and especially in relation to men and husbands. So that's the rub here, the interpretive rub that you need to know. Paul seemingly allows for women to pray and prophesy in some context of believers in chapter 11. And then in chapter 14, he says, let the women be silent in the churches. So which is it? Which is it? 
Which one are you going to choose? <laughs> well, we don't choose. We don't pit one against each other. They have to go together. Paul obviously is not contradicting himself within the span of two chapters. They go together. The question is, how do they go together? Right? That's the question. That's the interpretive question. I'm going to give you now, just really quickly, three plausible interpretations. Don't you hate when people do that? Like, just tell me the answer. Three plausible. It's like, and I'm not going to tell you the answer. <laughs> that is, I'm not going to give you my answer or even my preference or my understanding. I'll tell you why I'm not. I usually always do. I'm usually not afraid to do that. But here's why I'm not going to do that. You know that this whole study on men and women's roles began as the elders took up various questions we had from people. And it, we have been doing this as elders together jointly for, for quite a while. And on this particular issue, the elders are equally divided as to the interpretation. So we don't agree as elders. I think we agree on everything. We don't agree necessarily on everything. We don't agree on this. And we have spent a good portion of our study trying to understand this, looking at these texts, reading various issues, trying to understand how do they come together. And we came out on different, different understandings of this particular text. So you just, you need to hear that. People say, why is it taking you so long to do this study? Because of the Bible. It's not always clear and we've got to understand it. We actually care about the text. We want to get it right, right? And I say, ah, oh, who cares? We care. We do really care. And so we labor for a long time to try to understand the text and its proper application. So I'm saying that because my particular view or understanding doesn't overrule. That's not how we shepherd the church. We shepherd jointly as elders. I don't have the final say or the last say. So that's why I'm not going to share my particular view with you this morning, but give you the range of interpretations. Know that we don't agree. And by the way, because we don't see it exactly the same, that makes the application of this text in our church challenging, doesn't it? I mean, these texts really matter. If you believe it says universally, let women be silent in the churches, well, that has a real direct impact on what we do on Sunday mornings. So these things matter. And so that's why we wrestle as elders on, well, how are we going to apply this? So stay tuned because uh, we will publish some of those things and talk about that. But, but I want to at least orient you to the difficulty. Sometimes the Bible's more difficult to understand. And so here are three plausible. Now, I say plausible because I think each one of these and those who hold them are honestly seeking to understand the text. I don't think it's agenda driven. These are all people who would identify as complementarian, who believe like everything I've said in this series so far, they believe this the same way, but honestly see it differently. So let me give you the three and I'll just briefly point out, you know, the strength and weakness. I'll try not to tip my hand. That's hard to do, but I'm, I'm going to try my best here to be straight poker faced here as I give these number one. What does the speech Paul is referring? What does it mean? What speech is he referring to? One, it refers to all types of public address in the assembly. It refers to all types of public address in the assembly. So when Paul says, 
I don't allow women or permit women to speak the type of speech in this larger context or all the things he's talking about that speak to the congregation for the edification of the church. That's the context. So back in verse 26, you know, when he was talking about each one has a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, a psalm, that's the kind of speech he has in mind. Any public kind of address of the congregation for the edification of the church. That's what he's limiting. So it would not include conversations or congregational singing or congregational readings, but public addressing of the church for edification. That's what he is limiting here. Now, the strength, obviously, of that view is it just takes Paul's words at face value. They seem to be pretty universal. He doesn't qualify it, so let's not qualify it. Right? That's, that's the strength there. Now, your question should be, yeah, but well, remember chapter 11 back there about women praying and prophesying? How, how do you connect it, right? How do you relate those two? How do you resolve it? Well, just one note under this. This view understands the context of 1 Corinthians eleven five to be a private or semi-private gatherings of believers, not the public assembly of the church. That's how they resolve it. Yes, Paul said that, but Paul did not specify what the context was in chapter 11. After that section on head coverings, then he will turn and say, when you come together in the church, I want you to behave like this. So that section before, he wasn't talking about the public assembly. So he's talking about some other kinds of gatherings, either more private, semi-private gatherings, where that behavior is allowed as long as women wear that symbol of authority. But when he gets to the public assembly of the church, of the whole church together, he's very clear. So that's the resolution, right? And that's plausible. Very plausible. Are there weaknesses to that view? I think there are. I do. We, we walked through 1 Corinthians 11 last Sunday, and the context seems to be the gathering of the believers in the church. The use of prophecy that Paul has been arguing for here for the edification of the church seems to be in the assembly. That's when that gift is used. Why the need for a head covering if it's not in the public assembly? If Paul is concerned with relation of men and women in the church, then why the need for a head covering if he's not talking about in the church, right? So that's part of the, or a related question. Why is it okay for women to pray and prophesy in smaller group kind of settings of believers, but not in the assembly? And what constitutes a smaller gathering? Would they even know the difference? And... In our own context, it would be saying, where Paul is arguing here for each one has a gift, and you're to do this for the edification of church, and each one can do this. He's been arguing, each one has a psalm, and each one has to do it. But I really only met the men can do it. So all those, those are all just potential weaknesses of that view. Second view is that this speech refers to the oral judgment of prophecies in the assembly of the church. So now it's restricting not the context, but it's restricting the type of speech to the oral, that is out loud verbal, judgment of prophecies in the assembly of the church. So this view assumes that back in chapter 11, when Paul said women can pray and prophesy, he means the church assembly. So if he means they can pray and prophesy, he's not contradicting himself here, so he must mean something different 
about their silence. You see the logic? See how it works? Again, that's plausible. So it assumes the context of 11.5 is the public meeting of the church. So here, women are allowed to pray and prophesy in the assembly with the right submission. But the judgment of prophecies is considered exercising improper authority over men. So you say, where does that come from? Maybe you didn't see that. Verse 29. When he got to the prophets, he said, let two or three prophets speak and then let others, others pass judgment. Some sense of evaluating those prophets. And then he's going to regulate the prophets activity where he says, you know, only two or three speak. But if another has a revelation, let the first be seated. You can all prophesy. And then he's going to regulate in this view, he's going to regulate the judgment of prophecies by saying, yeah, but women can't participate in that part. So that's how this is understand. He's simply referring to them not participating in the judgment of prophecies because that would be considered an un- improper authority over men in the assembly. So again, you see the context. Weaknesses? Yes, there are weaknesses. It's a relatively new view, by the way. The first view is more historic. This view is much newer <laughs> in its understanding. That's not necessarily a weakness what are the weaknesses well it just again as you read it, it's really not the immediate doesn't appear to be the immediate context paul said a lot of things between verse 29 and verse 34 so to connect silence with judgment of prophecies is is a stretch right just linguistically a stretch or grammatically a stretch there it's not the immediate context paul himself doesn't qualify the speech like he did in the other two instances paul doesn't say silence in this regard so you're assuming that and you have to assume a kind of disputed view of prophecy for this view to work a view that prophecy in the new testament is fallible and needs to be evaluated in the church and you have to assume that the evaluation was verbal out loud speaking again there's no indication of that in the text when paul lists the different kind of speaking he doesn't include judgment of prophecy as one of those and you have to think that for some reason women are allowed to prophesy, but judging prophecy is more authoritative than giving prophecy. So anyway, those are weaknesses. I'm not tipping my hand, I, I hope. I, uh, number three, I'll give you one last one. Refers, this speech refers to disruptive speech or questions by wives that would dishonor, bring dishonor to their husbands. He's referring to a type of speech and questions within the assembly that would bring reproach to one's husband or to men who are leading. So where does that come from? Well, this view tries to say verse 35, the most immediate context, as the only clue to what type of speech he's referring to. So in verse 34, he says, just let the women keep silent. They're not permitted to speak. Verse 35 says, gives us a window into the kind of speech. If they desire to learn anything. So here, they're not judging prophecies here. They're, they're wanting to learn. They're maybe asking questions. They're speaking out, wanting to learn. If they want to learn, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it would be disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. So the issue, what's going on here, is that some kind of questioning, disruptive kind of speech of the order that is not proper for women, if it's with other men, that they need to ask their husbands at home. They should still learn, but in the proper 
context. So that's this view. Again, it's right there in the context. You can see the strength of it. Again, weaknesses, yes. <laughs> Once again, Paul doesn't seem to justify his unqualified prohibition in verse 34. He may give an example, but he doesn't qualify that. This view does rely very heavily on the culture of first century Corinth. Assuming that in that culture, it was disgraceful for a woman to speak to a man who was not her husband. And it was. We do have different accounts of that. That it was disgraceful for a woman to speak to a man or to ask questions of a man who's not her husband. And so that view assumes that context, that that's what's disgraceful here. That would be certainly against what was proper in that culture. So it would assume a lot about the culture and how that is applied. This idea of being disruptive is never mentioned in the text. It's never stated. And then the application would be more challenging in, in our culture. So weaknesses. So there you go. There, that's just a brief overview of what we've wrestled with for, for a lot of months um, in our meetings. So it's challenging, isn't it? What does it mean? You can continue to wrestle. As I said, as elders, we, we've come down at different points on this. And so what we have sought to do now is to, how do we come to consensus on how we're going to apply it in our church, in the assembly? So that's what we've worked on and we will give to you. Uh, it requires some flexibility on, on us and challenge and growth. So just full disclosure, that's where we're at. I want to leave you, though, not pointless here in the sermon, not be very good when we're talking about edifying the church. That wouldn't be very edifying to have no point to the sermon at all. Um, so let me leave you at least with these three abiding principles, okay? Wherever we come down on the specifics of what Paul is limiting in the church, like I said, it doesn't mean nothing. There are still principles functioning here that are important to get. And they go in line with what we've already seen. So we've already seen what I would say are clearer text on these issues. So here, here are the three principles I'll just leave you with. One, gender distinctions in the church are based on God's creation, design, and order. That's what we've seen through our entire study. That's what we saw in the parallel text of 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul clearly says, I don't allow women to teach or exercise authority. And he bases it on creation. We saw it last week in 1 Corinthians 11, this issue of that symbol of submission, yet based in creation design, so too here. Now here it's not quite as clear, but it seems to be implied. Look at verse 34. Let women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as the law also says. So he's back to this issue of submission, just like he was in those other texts, in the context of the assembly, and he's going to the Bible. Just like he did in the other text, just as the law says. So Paul, is, Paul here is not firstly grounding it in culture, but in Bible, in God's word, the authority of God's word. Now, it's not as clear as what he means by just as the law says. There's no specific text in the law that he's referring to that talks about women's silence in the assembly. But I think he's referring generally. It's the same way he used it. Up in verse 21 of the same context when he says, in the law it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah. Well, not the Mosaic law. He's thinking of the Old Testament. And I think he's referring generally, just as it says. Everything we have seen in our study in the Old Testament, back to the creation design of men and women, 
And the entire pattern throughout the Old Testament teaches this. I think that's what he's saying. So he's going back to God's order. He's going back to creation design, not specifically just Mosaic law, but what we see all through the Old Testament. So once again, these principles are grounded in God's good design, in God's word. However, we come out on the specifics of this text, that principle is still there that we need to apply, seek to apply rightly both in church and family. And we've done that in other contexts. So I just want you to see that again. That principle is there, even though we may not be as clear on the specifics of this text. Number two, your second principle biting to lead you with edification of the gathered church places limits on the expression of gifts. The motive is love. The edification, the building up of the gathered church is places limits on the expression of gifts. And the motivation is love for one another. Again, Paul commands silence three times in this text, not just to women, but the other two times in the use of gifts. There must be a proper order, a proper conduct and limitations for there to be the right edification that Paul desires in the building up of the church. So that's a principle that you see there. Another way to say that is this, the ability to do something does not come with the right to do it. The ability to do something, even the spiritual gift to do something, does not come with the right to do it in every context. Paul limits it for the good of the church. And so we see that principle. So even in the limitation, whatever the specifics are of women in the gathering, it's still part of God's good order for the good of the church. And we have to believe that. Because the argument I hear used against me repeatedly by those who disagree with my understanding of how men and women function in the church goes along these lines. Yes, but she is such a gifted Bible teacher. She should be allowed to preach or lead. That's not what determines things, right? Yes, God gives gifts. And yes, he gives gifts even of teaching to women. We'll talk about it next time. But God determines context. And there are limitations all the time for the sake of edification. So here's another last principle I'll leave you with. We're done. All members, men and women, are essential to the functioning and growth of the body. That's where we started. All members, men and women, are essential to the functioning and the growth of the body. I hope you believe that. It's where Paul started with gifts in the body, chapter 12. Yes, there are limitations in certain areas, in certain contexts, for God's reasons. But all of us are necessary. You are necessary for the functioning of the body. You are not to be a spectator merely. Your gift, maybe it's not as prominent. The way God has designed you. Yes, those will be expressed in different gendered ways. But yet the bigger principle is we're essential. God has gifted us for the building up of the body. We can't say to one, we don't need you. We need you. We need you, which, which just means the sermon is not everything, right? Who gets to preach? It's not everything. Now, we think that's important. We spend a lot of time on our Sunday mornings unfolding God's word in this assembly, but it's not everything. And Sunday service is not the only thing. 
church is so much more. Yes, this is our primary gathering, but the church is the church in all kinds of contexts where we need all kinds of giftings. So lean into that. Believe it. Don't envy one another, but love one another. Well, let me pray for us, and we will pick it up next time. Father, thank you for, again, your word, and we confess that some things are difficult, and we labor to understand them. Oh, give us, give us humility in handling your word. Give us a desire to handle it correctly, but charity when we disagree. And Lord, give us wisdom how to apply this in our church fellowship in a way that honors you and that is good for the body. Give us wisdom. We desire it from you. We ask in your son's name. Amen.